0: Welcome to Impactful Open Source, the podcast where we talk about how open source has made an impact on the world at large, when it has gone from a computer's terminal all the way through cities, municipalities, governments, universities, anywhere it needs to go to make an impact. Any sort of project counts for this podcast, we're also interested in vision. Where do we want to go and how do we want to get there? So today we have our first guest, Saeed Choudhury, Saeed works at Johns Hopkins University and lives in Baltimore. Saeed, how are you doing this morning? I'm good, how are you? Doing good. So I asked you on this podcast because I know you've been doing really interesting work setting up the OSPO at Johns Hopkins. Can you talk a bit about what that is and how you've done it?
1: So I like the way you described the flow of open source, you know, from a computer terminal to impact in the world. I think universities think about that a lot. Uh, in terms of what we do and what impact we can have on the world, but we haven't thought about that so much with open source software, which seems a bit ironic to me. I think there's a recognition now that open source software is its own sort of primary research object, but we haven't treated it like that. So something like the Journal of Open Source Software, for example, is an interesting development, but it still comes at it from the article journal tied to Yep. certain processes we we're very familiar with in, in academia and in higher education universities. So we're trying to treat uh, open source software as its own primary research object, and in essence, you know, treat it as that kind of impact factor in, within universities. But we don't know how to do that yet. So we are borrowing, quite frankly, from people who've been doing this <laughs> for a while in, in the private sector and the corporate sector, and borrowing this construct of the Open Source Programs Office of the OSPO. And it's similar in that it really does focus on the best practices, engineering aspects, policy aspects, legal aspects that you have to do in any kind of organization. So companies and universities have human resources, legal departments, so on. So in that sense, the OSPO is similar to what you have in, in a corporate setting. But we are different, right? We don't have the same mission same kind of way of working, same kind of way of collaborating as a, as a company might have. So we're trying to adapt it in the context of a university setting. And a key part of that, in essence, is asking the questions around, what are you trying to do with your open source software? So university researchers, students have a diverse set of motives. Some of them are using it for a small lab and that's all they care about, right? And that's okay. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Some of them are using it and have grand ideas about what kind of impact it's going to have. So the question then is, what type of impact are you looking for? Is it commercialization, which might be more familiar to a technology transfer office? Are you looking to release it open source and the impact is community engagement or use by you know, a municipality or a certain community? It's that latter category. We don't have a lot of experience. So we're hoping that the hospital can help you know, raise the awareness, identify the software that we have, quite frankly. We don't even have an inventory <laughs> of the open source software that sits within university settings. So we're starting with those foundational kinds of elements and then going to important questions
0: around back. So I love the way you frame that. And open source in academia, means a lot of different things. There are, yes. like you said, just, you know, individual grad students writing scripts who put it up on GitHub, that happens yes. all the time. And then there's also labs doing really important work example that's close to you, I think, is is NASA, right? So they have a ton of open source stuff that's very specific. That's right. Because it's funded by the government, I believe, has to be open source. Did we make that law yet? Yeah, I think that this is a whole broad category of open access, uh, open scholarship.
1: So most of that conversation has focused around articles. Now, one very interesting aspect of this is there's a very mature ecosystem around articles. Yeah. <laughs> we're talking hundreds of years, right? And and it hasn't drastically changed much in hundreds of years, to be quite yeah. frank. So it's a little bit harder, I'm not saying it's possible, to make that ecosystem more open. And we're making important, you know, steps and advances in that way. One of the advantages of open source is that ecosystem doesn't exist yet. You don't have a formalized you know, player in that ecosystem saying, this is the peer review process. This is the workflow that you have to go through. This is the ultimate way it gets packaged and disseminated. As you said, you can be an individual and put something on GitHub, and there you go. It's out there. And we have to balance that in a university setting. right? One of the things we have to think about is we do have thousands of students and researchers doing this kind of work. We can't support everybody. right? Yep. So one of the important questions that I've started to ask, and what's interesting to me is I heard from our provost actually, you know, when I was talking to him last few months ago, he basically said, you know, I get thousands of faculty members coming to me and saying, I've got the greatest idea ever, right? And many of them do, right? (laughs) I I work at a very research intensive university that, that has a lot of amazing things happening. But imagine a provost or a, you know vice president for research or vice provost for research saying, "Can you give me a tool that helps me sort of sift through <laughs> all these different open source products that we're, we're developing?" And it's not to say an individual graduate student's work isn't important; it very well could be. But that doesn't necessarily mean the institution has to go support it, you know, with the resources that running through the hospital. Maybe we do. Maybe we look out there and this person's done something so amazing it's being used by thousands of people we didn't even know that. But it also allows us to go again from that spectrum of the individual to large research labs that are doing really important work in the open source field, right? And the typical mechanisms universities use tend to favor that large research lab, right? Mm-hmm. We look at the large grant, we look at the number of publications, some faculty get a certain reputation and so on. But we don't know as much about everything in between. Yeah. So that's going to be a key
0: part of what we're exploring as well. So. The main function of the OSPO then in a university setting is support in a way, like trying to figure out how to massage open source along its way, how to water it, how to garden it, grow it, whatever metaphor you want to use.
1: Exactly. I mean, some folks are going to ask very, you know, I don't mean it's in a bad way, basic kinds of questions, right? Like what tools should I use? What development environments make sense? What licenses make sense? And some folks are going to say, I've got that figured out right? We've already done that. We put it out there. Can you help me get more interest in this? Can you help me support the community that's growing? Some folks might say, I don't want it commercialized in the formal sense, but are there revenue you know, opportunities around what we're doing? So it's going to be a whole suite of different kinds of, you know, sort of offerings and support we might give them. But ultimately, it's still about understanding more about open source in the university and how we connect, quite frankly, to other parts of the open source ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. because you may have an individual writing scripts and they're not relying on anything other than you know, their own intellectual abilities. But I am confident there's a lot of open source that happens in many universities that uses a ton of stuff outside of our walls. Yeah. And we don't know what those connections are. If you want to think about it from a risk perspective, what our dependencies are. right? So when you think about the supply chain aspects, of yep. Software. We don't have a clear mapping of that, so we're out here talking about sustainability of this, that, and the other, and very few questions around. Wait a minute, we've got all these folks using these open source, you know, libraries, modules, whatever. Are those things well supported? Do we care? So, one of the things we're launching, as well is a FOSS contributor fund, we got yes. a grant from the Sloan Foundation, and many thanks to Sloan for their support. Working with Dwayne O'Brien at Indeed and Alyssa Wright at Open Collective. So we're going to run Boss Contributor Fund for a year, Hopkins, to do exactly that.
0: So a lot of the function of OSBOs that I can tell in industry are, A, to look internally and say, what dependents do we have? What licenses? Are there any GPL licenses down the stack? If so, can we get rid of them? And, you know, all that sort of internal yeah. mongering. But then there's also a point where the OSBO looks outward and figures out, okay, how can we best allocate our resources to market ourselves as a company? How can we use it to retain great staff? How can we use it to attract yeah. people who should work for us? Yeah. Um, and how can we donate back to the industry as a measure of good faith and you know corporate accountability? Yeah. I know Dwayne O'Brien you just mentioned is all about that. He runs a working group at Sustain called Corporate Accountability, where he tries to figure out that exact topic. Yeah. So for universities, you have a different metric for what awesome right. means, right? You're really <laughs> interested in research and I've heard my friend Jacob Green use the term, the four pillars of university. Do you know what I'm talking about and can you explain how Ospo fits into those?
1: Yeah. It's interesting because many of the things you described, we also care about too, right? We care about recruiting and retaining and, you know, marketing. So just recently, these U.S. News & World Report rankings came out. We look at that (laughs) and every other university does too. So those things also apply again with the, you know, sort of specific flavor for the university context. But we also have a big fundamental issue around how to collaborate. Yeah. So the, the way universities typically work with each other is the grants. Yep. And a grant is actually, administrative speaking, it's a legal agreement. It's a funding agency making an agreement with the institution, actually. I've gotten several grants in my career. And one of the earliest lessons I learned is that is not my grant.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's,
1: uh, it's, it's the institution's grant that you know, I administer and I execute. So we have these legal kind of ways of working with other universities or even working within the university, right? But this is another thing that Jacob said, and Jacob Green said to me a long time ago, is open source is a way of collaboration, right? Yeah. It, it's actually a way of partnering, a way of thinking, a way of executing something as a team. That's what I find really fascinating in terms of how universities might work, work with each other. Is if we don't have to think of it only as grants and data use agreements and you know, business access agreements and all these other kinds of agreements we have, open source is another collaboration mechanism, and I think it's much more nimble, and I think it's much more flexible, and I think that's really, really very promising. You know those pillars you had mentioned, or Jacob has mentioned, is something he you and know, I've been talking about for a long time. Most people think of universities, and they immediately come to the idea of research and education, and yeah. and that's. Totally understandable. It's a huge part of what we do. It's how most universities make their reputation. As you said, You know, when we say we're awesome, Hopkins says things like we've gotten more federal funding than any university for the last 35 years. Yeah. Uh, that's an awesome metric Hopkins can look at. And when you look at education, you can do things like look at the US News and World Rankings, where you can look at what our graduates are doing and you know what, what kind of classes, the ranking of departments and so on. And there's two other aspects that are a little less well-known, maybe. One is what we often call translation, right? which is Mm -hmm. how do you take that research and even the education and translate it into some other context. And that again, typically comes in the form of technology transfer. And in a place like Hopkins, we have a tremendous amount of technology transfer around medicine.
0: I don't know what you mean by transfer. Could you
1: explain that? Yeah. So I have something that I've done in the university context, typically a research product, right? And it could be grant funded. Most of the times it is. It doesn't have to be, but most of the times it's grant funded, and even with most funding agencies, federal agencies, private agencies, they encourage you to find a way to come up with a different kind of use or different kind of context for it. Uh, so I create a medical device, and that is, you know, research takes place, and there's some implementation prototyping, but then can I commercialize that? Can I take that into market? And what I find so important about open source, and if you want to broaden that to open hardware, open license, and so on, is again, there may be that alternative pathway. It doesn't have to be that I create a company or that I license it and then someone else creates a company or it's spun off and you know, a VC firm gets the rights and so on. There's a group in the university called the Alliance for a Healthier World, and I've been involved with them for a couple of years now. And they're very interested in these things like open licensing and open patents and you know open pharmaceuticals, things like that. So that's what translation is really about, is we create something through yeah. research, we create something through education. How can it be used, you know, at large within society? But Most recently, certainly because of COVID, certainly because of the terrible things we're seeing around racial injustice, universities are rightly being asked, what about social impact? What about community impact? And don't get me wrong, we have that. There are great examples of that at Hopkins and many other places. But I think it's a fair question (laughs) to say, what more can you do? We really need a lot more from everybody. To deal with these problems. And with something like COVID, Hopkins has done a tremendous amount, quite frankly, to help deal with COVID. The group that I lead in the library played you know, a small but important part in supporting that GHU with COVID map, for example. And yep. our public health researchers are advising you know, the city, the state, the federal government, you name it. So that's a good story around what can a university do to help you know, with a major crisis or a public health issue or you know, a societal issue. But I think there's more we can do. And I think that, again, because open source is that alternative pathway into reaching out to others, right? Even members of the community. A really good example I can give you is the work we've been doing around the tests, this open source municipal platform. This is actually the first thing that brought me and Jacob Green together. It is The city of Paris has this platform, Lutez. The they've been using it for a few years now. They've invested, I think, on the order of 50 million euros to develop it. We are piloting that with the community center in West Baltimore, and this is a really amazing group of people in the St. Francis Neighborhood Center that's got a very strong relationship with the folks in their community and providing a range of you know, support and sort of partnerships from things like food delivery all the way up to Chromebooks for you know education during COVID. So they're now looking at becoming a smart center. Mm-hmm. The Saint Francis Smart Center is the new mantra they're putting out there, and they see Lutest as a key part of, of making this happen. Now, what we did was basically say to the city of Paris, "Hey, if we can dedicate a couple of developers to this, can we work together as partners on this?" And we have. Hopkins has now actually written code that's been committed into you know the actual core Lutest framework. We're getting requirements from Saint Francis. We're rolling that into the development effort. It's the beginnings of a community effort, right? You know, Denise Cooper said this, you know, very illuminating thing to me once. Is think about the difference between open code and open software, right? Open source software, right? If you put the code on GitHub, it's open code. Yep. If nobody uses it, it's open code. <laughs>
0: yeah. The open source is a verb, is another thing that. People are fond of saying, right? It's an act of going out and doing something with the code. Exactly.
1: Exactly. So now you've got at least two organizations giving code to the same code base. You've got a community center saying, here's what we want to do with it. Now, if I tried to do that to the standard mechanisms within a university,
0: (laughs) it's really tough.
1: uh, It would have taken a lot longer, it would have been a lot harder, but because the test gives us that open source framework to begin with it's a whole different story. So So I think that translation and impact is is really quite, it's facilitated by open source.
0: Yeah, so you're sort of outlining this vision of the open source program office, at least at Johns Hopkins, as helping out with connecting to the community, with finding out what code is going on, with supporting collaborative networks, and also you mentioned at the beginning with actually helping academics raise their status in a way, like JAWS, right? The Journal of Open Source Software helps People take code, turn it into a journal article, and then be able to use that with their tenure board and say, look at me, I've been producing stuff. Publisher Parish is the model for academia, so it's really hard to do that with code. This is one of the ways you can support that.
1: That's right.
0: When you mentioned helping the community at St. Francis, and you say it's really hard to do that through traditional models of university, I get what you mean. It's hard to take university people out of the ivory tower and have them enter the streets again. It's just very difficult. Right. How did you incentivize them to work on tests? How did that happen?
1: So I'm very fortunate to work with a group of very talented folks who obviously believe in the mission of universities and libraries because they can pretty much work anywhere they want, yep. <laughs> make a lot more money than they do. So there's a sort of self-selection. I mean, I'd like to think I had something to do with recruiting and, and, <laughs> and you know, retaining and creating a culture and all that. But obviously, these are people who made a deliberate choice that I want to do something very public service oriented through this academic lens. So the appetite was already there. The OSPO at Hopkins is out of the library. So I'm actually, you know, I work in the libraries. And one of the useful things about a library is it's kind of the most neutral entity in a, in a university setting in many ways. Right? right? So if you think about a lot of the academic divisions, they have a particular perspective. The school of Engineering, School of Arts and Sciences, the Business School, so on. It's hard for the School of Engineering. It's not possible. It's hard for the School of Engineering to say, "I'm going to run this for everybody at the university,"
0: because <laughs> I can imagine that would be an issue.
1: Yeah. Ultimately, rightly so, the Dean of another division is going to say, "Well, don't you have a conflict of interest <laughs> because you're running the set of Engineering?" The library is actually an academic division here at Hopkins. It's not always the case, but we are, and we serve all the division, right? And through our network of sister libraries, we absolutely cover whole campus, and we can even reach out to places like the Applied Physics Laboratory, you know, which is a, a division of Hopkins that does a lot of defense-related work. But I spoke with people from there not that long ago, and they said, "Oh, we've got a ton of open source too. Well, we could absolutely benefit from this this kind of support too." So I think it's it's a case basically of can you find an entity that is service-oriented, that is neutral, that can you know, engage with these kinds of communities in a way that doesn't feel like you're trying to advance one particular agenda within the university setting. I ain't got to give a lot of credit to St. Francis, of course, right? I mean, this is not without some level of effort and maybe even risk on their part, right? They're taking a leap of faith too. But I think they see the potential here, particularly after COVID, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It's like COVID has become, you know, whatever you want to call it an amplifier, an accelerator, or, or whatever you want to call it. They had been thinking about becoming a smart center. They had been thinking about digital inclusion strategy. And like I said, some very thoughtful folks here. But now, of course, it's even more pressing. They, they don't have as much physical interaction with their community. They've had a lot of kids that have been you know, going to school from home and so on. Yeah. And it can start to generate even more interesting kinds of and important kinds of conversations. So one thing we talked to St. Francis about is homeless shelters. Yeah. So Baltimore is not immune. To homelessness is a pressing issue. And what I found out is that homeless people sometimes will call a place like St. Francis Neighborhood Center or a community center and say, Can you tell me where there are available beds in the city? Right. And the director at St. Francis said, you know, the way that typically works is I will call someone I know, and it's sort of this word of mouth, friend of a friend kind of network, right? Well. There's got to be a
0: better way to do to that. Find available beds. Yeah, a database would be good.
1: <laughs> a database would be a good start, right? Or individuals who are literally in real time trying to find a critical resource, and individuals who may have that tacit knowledge sort of calling each other. Yeah. So Lutessa has a plugin, you know, that's related to homeless shelters, right? And this is a really great example of how all these pieces come together. There's a group of students at Hopkins focused on open source that did some research into this and they found out it's not enough to ask that there's a bed. You have to ask a lot of different kinds of questions, right? So some of them are women. They want to go to a shelter for only women, shelter that yep. takes kids. Some people have medical devices, even homeless people. Some of them have medical devices they take with them. They need a low bed so they can plug it in. Yep. So all these nuances that you know students at Hopkins researched on their own. So it's kind of I would never have thought about those kinds of questions until these students actually started talking to people in the community. Yeah. So now you can imagine, here's a set of very rich requirements. We've got a development team between Paris and Hopkins that can build this into the test. And then you got community centers that could potentially use that. right? And what could the city of Baltimore do? They could run that database you were talking about. Yep. You know, it's different to ask a city like Baltimore to build this functionality. That's a whole other set of the heavy lifting, right? But if you say, look, we've got the network of people and we've got the platform, we just need you to maintain the data and make sure it's up to date. I think that's something a city can do much more easily.
0: It also sounds like something that an Ospo could help with like if you absolutely. have links with industry then you can say well we can host it for you on aws or something because we have a deal with them absolutely
1: and you know one of the other things you'll hear about a lot in universities and governments you name it is procurement Yep. <laughs> so open source is another pathway <laughs> in the procurement sense too so as you said it might be a lot easier for a municipality to say i've got a software as a service running right rather than i'm gonna install LuTest, run it locally or i'm gonna hire you know, a company to run something, it gives people more options. And I think it gives people more options in a, in a very robust
0: way. That's excellent. So you've talked a bit about loop tests being used for homeless shelters Yeah, that hasn't already been used, has it?
1: We're testing the basic kinds of core functionality around like appointments. So when there are food delivery things happening or St. Francis has events, that's where we've focused our energy so far. They did a pretty major upgrade recently and we're, as you always do with the new release, <laughs> we're working our way through all the, the bugs and the, and the kinks, but we're looking to roll it out, you know, in a pilot mode, St. Francis this fall.
0: Awesome. And then you mentioned earlier that Johns Hopkins University is a very large institution. It's getting a yep. ton of federal money. I don't think a lot of, at least I didn't know that until very recently. I think, think of Johns Hopkins as just a good school near Baltimore. Yeah. Possibly near, maybe not in, because if it was in Baltimore, it'd be different. I, I don't know. I have a very different image no, of what Baltimore is.
1: Right? We, we are pretty, the main campus is pretty much smacked in the middle of Baltimore.
0: Pretty in the middle of Baltimore, yeah. yeah. So open source, you keep coming back to the central theme of it's just another pathway that can kind of go mm-hmm. around the horrible sloughs and fens <laughs> and rambles of 300 years of university accretions. What else can the OSPO do for the city at large, for its local area? Is there Mm -hmm. anything you can do besides, say, collaborate with local places like St. Francis? Are there ways of getting people into the university as well as going down? How would that work?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I, I can mention something to you that I don't think we've talked about anywhere else yet. So we recently launched with the OSPO as the operational entity an Institute for Applied Open Source. Cool. So, yeah. So you know Jacob, <laughs> he's an energy wave, <laughs> yep. so if you, if you take the energy wave and sort of put it into this context, we came up with this idea of this Institute and Jacob was the one who said, you know, we should create semesters of code.
0: One, one second. For those of you who don't know, Jacob Green is running a network called the Plus Plus network at the moment, which is open source program offices working together in collaboration with cities, municipalities, and governments. He also was behind Test for a while and worked with the city of Paris. Yes. And is a very excited Baltimore resident. So he's one of the ways I was able to get Saeed on this podcast. So That's thank correct. you, Jacob.
1: Okay. He's also alumnus of Johns Hopkins as well and on our computer science advisory board. So high energy individual. (laughs) So Jacob and I had a conversation around this concept of semesters of code, right? So if you imagine hackathon, you know, roughly a weekend long, Google Summer of Code, semesters of code is sort of, in our view, the next instantiation of this, right? So one of the things you don't get in a hackathon necessarily is sustained kind of outputs, right? A lot of energy, a lot of effort. At all, the Red Bull fades. Yeah, yeah, Red Bull pizza, you name it. So again, really engaging with the students, great experience. Maybe you can identify some talented folks through something like that, but we're trying to sort of extend that into semester long experiences. Mm. And Hopkins, not that long ago, did a major review of its undergraduate education through a a group called the Commission on Undergraduate Education and made a set of recommendations. And one of them was to have these so-called Hopkins semesters, Mm. which, you know, if you study in certain disciplines, it's like a semester abroad. But yeah. the recommendation was that everyone should have the equivalent of a semester abroad, not only people studying you know, French yeah. literature or, or whatever. So why can't we have all undergrads go through this sort of deep semester long immersive experience? And we think these semesters of code can be that. So the idea is, can you take open source projects like the test or something else that you know, my group developed called the public access submission system? or a lot of other open source software that we're going to identify through the OSPO and Hopkins, or even external open source projects, right? Can you take those and create an educational experience around them Hmm. and do that over a semester-long period so that it's not a weekend or even a summer? It's You're learning a lot about these things in your, quote, regular classes. Now we're giving you a real-world platform, right? This is no longer theoretical or abstract. You're not going to just show this you know, on a Sunday night and, and then forget about it. You're going to commit to actually working on this. You know, Let's say building a homeless shelter plug-in for the That's a serious real-world problem, right? Yeah. So you're now making contributions in a way that can affect people's lives. So let's think about what that means in a professional sense. I don't, mm. I'm not saying students are not professional you know, inherently. It's just they don't necessarily understand what it means to write code and commit it in a way that it's checked in and it's robust and it's up to certain standards and so on. And a couple of things that you know we think are really interesting and important about this. One is that we hear, you know, Hopkins gets a lot of good students and they get out and they get good jobs and so on. But even those students, there's a process of sort of reorienting them once they've been hired, right? Yeah. They don't necessarily know how to work in the open source way. And at a place like Hopkins where in your class, you're basically trying to show, look, I can write the best code of anyone, right? Well, you show up at a Google or a Microsoft or an Amazon. Guess what? Everyone there can write the best code. <laughs> <laughs> friend, right? So that shouldn't be your claim to fame anymore. You got to get yeah. away from that and start realizing you're part of the team now. And I've heard from a lot of the people in the Plus, Plus network that you know we go through weeks, maybe even months, and just sort of saying, I-, "I get it. I know you can write really great code, but understand how we write code and start to work in this process. We think these semesters of code can start helping that happen. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine that they have a certain way of doing their work that's more conducive to being ready to work in, in different settings like the corporate setting. The other thing it does is it allows us to create these engagements, right? So one of the things, for example, I heard from St. Francis, very rightly, is of course we'd love to work with students and people at Hopkins, but we don't want them to do things in a burst and then go away. Because that just takes up a lot of our time, quite frankly, in some cases it raises our hopes, and then we're left there sort of going, well, what happened? You know, we had this great energy and whatever, and now what do we do? These semesters of code in some sense are almost you know, a strong signal You know, maybe not a guarantee. Of course, we don't know how things necessarily play out, but it's a strong signal and it's a commitment on our part that we're not going to just walk away from this. Right? We're going to have these semester-long efforts now, where whatever we're doing with you will keep building over time. And because the library is sort of backing it through the OSPO, you've got an organizational home that's committing to saying, "Sure, we we get it." You know, Mm -hmm. the students aren't going to maintain the code forever, and we don't want St. Francis to have to maintain the code, but the library's here. And oh, by the way, with LaTasse, we're working with City of Paris, and with that, we're working with some. So it's kind of bringing all those dimensions together, right? The research, the education, the translation, and the social impact into the academic sphere. Right? Mm. We're using a construct that the academic folks go, well, yeah, of course, this makes sense to me. You know, the big breakthrough was the chair of computer science endorsed this idea. We're going to launch them in fall of 21 so we've got a, about a year uh, runway or you know ramp up to get this going and you know that may sound like a lot of time but <laughs> it's a lot to do. <laughs> yeah. there's a lot to do there's there's still a pandemic going on so we've got our work cut out for us but it's really exciting because it's a new academic program that sort of builds on top of the hospital and allows us to do the kinds of things you're asking about in terms of engaging the community
0: i have to ask the question it sounds I get the incentive for students to do it during their semester. This is part of their grade, right? It's what they're paying for is learning about how things work. But one of the classic problems of open source is how do you incentivize maintainers in the long haul? Do you pay them? Do you not pay them? Mm -hmm. Are they paid through their company or are they independent hobbyists who eventually burn out? Yeah. And so training a lot of students to work collaboratively and then letting them go in a world where collaboration, almost isn't as important as figuring out how you can get people to pay you to do it. Right? seems really tough to me. That seems like it's going to be a lot of learning that you're going to have to impart very quickly.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And one of the key things that I have stressed repeatedly (laughs) to everyone at Hopkins, and I will keep doing it over the next year and beyond, is we have a lot to learn. (laughs) Mm. So while we have interesting open source projects, there are others outside of Hopkins that are also interesting. While we have a lot of people who may have produced open source of software, there are a lot of people outside the university who've been doing that for a long time who understand roles that we don't have, like maintainers, community managers, yeah. um, that, that are just as important as the people writing the code. Mm-hmm. In some cases, maybe more important than the people writing the code. So those are new roles. Maybe they're even new roles just across the board, but certainly in the university context, they're new roles. But one of the really interesting observations that Josh Greenberg, who's the program director at the Sloan Foundation that's given us the FOSS Contributor Fund grant, made to me some time ago is when he's noticed that with these kind of over time, as foundations start to invest more in particular areas, and I think open source is becoming one of them, one of the signs that it's actually matured is you see administrative changes within universities. So, there was a large effort that the Sloan Foundation, the Moore Foundation, and maybe missing one or two foundations did together around data intensive research and scholarship. Right. And at the end of the funding for those particular programs, Josh pointed out to me that suddenly these universities realized hey, you know, da- data scientists is a role, right? Oh, yeah. You know, data wrangler, data curator, data manager. These are roles. These Quants. are these are valuable are skills <laughs> <laughs> that we need to figure out how to sustain and support this role in our context, right? In our university yep. context. I think the same thing's gonna happen with maintainers, community managers. The universities are gonna recognize that these are important roles. Yep. For not only us, but for us to engage with folks outside the university.
0: And we're already seeing that happen in certain places. For instance, Brandeis has an Ospo right. type course, right? How to do open exactly. source, what that's that right. means. And we're going to see that's more right. of those. Yeah. Um, sounds like your Institute of Applied Open Science is going to be open source. It's pretty similar.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're learning from, you know, the folks across UCSB, for example, and you know, RIT, there, there are other yep. nodes that are doing this. though, and I think that's very healthy and encouraging, right? We want a network to form around this. So we don't want one institution trying to do this on their own. That rarely works in any context.
0: The point of this podcast is to talk about impact at scale. And it's really easy to see someone throw a stone into a pond and have the ripple spread and say, that person made an impact. Yeah, It's a bit harder when you have a network of people throwing rocks yep. all together to judge independently. But yep. I can see how you're part of this wider scheme making ripples. And I can yeah. see how work is going on there. I wish we had more time to talk about actually we probably have a couple minutes. Do you tell yeah. me a bit about the COVID map and where yeah. it's used and how that happened and what's going on there?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting story. So it's two individuals, Lauren Gardner, a professor in our civil and systems engineering group, and her graduate student, Frank Dong. My understanding, I've heard this first time from both of them. Literally, we're just sitting around having coffee and saying, you know, this COVID thing is obviously becoming a, a big deal. And Frank said, you know, hey, you know, maybe I can put together a map just, just to show what's happening at that time, you know, in, in China in particular. So the reason the library got initially involved is they used the vendor platform and, and called Esri, the GIS suite of products from Esri, but the library manages, right? I mean, we maintain the license and the, and the software and so on. And I remember seeing this, and I contacted one of my colleagues, our manager of data services, and I said, hey, I just saw this. Do you think there are any infrastructure or you know concerns or issues we should think about? She said, maybe, but from what I'm told, this is going to be taken down you know, by the end of the weekend. <laughs> so clearly that did not happen. <laughs> and I think we went from zero to 100 in nanoseconds. So it was just a very challenging experience of. Again, a research project, literally a research project, suddenly becoming a worldwide resource. How many people yeah. are using this map? So at its peak, I think there were you know, over a billion hits a day. If you wow. look at the cumulative hits on the map and the GitHub repo, it's well into the billions at this point. Wow. I'm told, and I haven't, I haven't checked on this specifically, but you know, Astrid was a reliable and, and uh, knowledgeable company. That At its peak, it was actually used more often than the people were searching Google. So, you know, that'll give you some sense of yeah. what, what happened there. What's been interesting in the open context is, first of all, open data, right? I mean, yes. we, we wanted there to be open data that could be used by other teams, and there has been. There's been a lot of reuse of the data. I was part of the early conversations where I was saying, you know, there are folks in the open source world who could probably give us some advice about how to do this. Mm. And then the software side of it, 3 has been phenomenal to work with, to be very clear. They put in countless hours making this happen and continue to do so. But I will say that there may be some value in thinking about an open source version of these kinds yeah. of apps and dashboards. right? And both can coexist, just as it does in, in other cases, and S3 might even participate in something like this. right? So that not only can you use the data, but maybe you can use the data and create your own representations um, that are you know specific to your community's needs or have yep. nuances that you know are not easy to get through something out of the box. So it's been an, a great example of that research having tremendous impact. And it's been a great example of how openness can be an important dimension in it. And I think there there may be some interesting things for us to explore in in the future as well.
0: Excellent. This isn't going to be the first pandemic that we're gonna see in our no. lifetime, unfortunately. No. And so things like maps are really, really useful for showing that. Yeah. Um, so I can really see an open source application later, even for things like tracking the air quality, if people could do that independently. I mean, right yeah. now that's a big issue. What, because the
1: wildfires? Yeah, yeah, exactly. On the
0: West Coast, when this podcast is being recorded, there was a ton of yeah. fires are probably still there and it's brutal, right? So mapping that and being able to do that open source without having to go through, yeah. say, a large body like the New York Times to figure out how to get them to do right. it. It's just, just do Absolutely. it. Absolutely and it's up, that'd be great.
1: It's like the description of the university, right? Individual grad students putting scripts on GitHub all the way to large, well-funded research labs producing robust open source. We want to support that spectrum of needs and users and communities, individuals, all the way to, you know, entire states and maybe even the country. So yeah, I couldn't agree really And those
0: happened. labs always started with a grad student at some point, I mean, so, <laughs> right. right? All that work.
1: That pebble in the pond you were talking about, right?
0: Yeah. I mean rocket fuel was invented by two kids at Caltech who were just playing around in their dorm room. And then what happened was the university said, okay, they almost burned the place down. Let's (laughs) give them a barn. You know, and and did that over there. I stole that from the book, the Martian. I really should fact check that. But anyway, (laughs) it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. I want people to know where they can follow Johns Hopkins university open source program office, where they can follow you on the internet and where they can get plugged in and learn
1: more. We are working on a website for the OSPO. I'm mm. looking at final versions of it right now. Also, awesome. when that's available, I will certainly let you know the link okay. to that. In the meantime, and we we'll link to this from our site as well. In the meantime, I gave a talk last year at Baltimore Washington Open Week when we first announced this OSPO. So I can send you a link to that as well. And I think as we progress, well, certainly I can obviously share the St. Francis Neighborhood Center Link with folks so they can see what kinds of things they're doing and the COVID map. And then, as the Institute for Applied Open Source launches its first semester's of code, we can certainly share information about those. I can share links to you know the, the example projects we're working with right now awesome. as well. Yeah. So there are a few resources we can we can get to you right now. A few we'll get to you in the short term and then a bit longer term too.
0: It sounds like there's way too much for me to ask a standard boilerplate question like, what are you most excited about going forward? It sounds like all of these things together.
1: (laughs) There's a a lot to be excited about. I think the most important thing is I've been in universities pretty much most of my life. But the one stint I took outside of the university was at the United Nations. I worked for two years. I was born in Bangladesh and I went back to work in Bangladesh with the UN around the floods of Bangladesh. So talk about it. Seriously complex, difficult, and important issue. I ended up you know, going to interact with people in the villages and talking to people about the real world impacts <laughs> of these kinds of things. So it's not abstract to me. Um, yeah. The kinds of things that we can do through universities really could impact people's lives in a very tangible and real and daily way. Yep. And again, I'm not saying we don't, but I'm talking about every day. Can we get somebody in the city of Baltimore to say, hey, Hopkins did this for me? That's what I'm most excited about. So many years ago when I was a grad student, we used to do, there's a group here called the People Homesteading Group, where a family gets a home if they work on it for 12 weeks. And I got a group of engineering students to volunteer and we would go help them on their homes. And when we finished the first one, I remember we were leaving and the dad came out with a bunch of cookies and he said, you know, my wife made these cookies for you guys. And we're like, wow, that's really nice of you. Thank you for doing that. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, I didn't know there were nice kids like you at Johns Hopkins. Cool. So I want everyone to know that there are nice kids at Johns Hopkins and cool. that there's stuff we can do for them in their daily lives. That's what excites me. Awesome. I love it. Thank Thanks you so much. Thank you, Richard.